when you're working against a threat actor, you, you almost have to assume a breach. Like you have to assume that something like this is going to happen and then try and figure out like, you know, what should we have done? Couchbase is a modern multi-cloud-to-edge, SQL-friendly JSON document database for building applications with agility, performance, and scale. If you're new to Couchbase and would like to learn more, the Couchbase Developer Portal is the best place to start. It's loaded with tutorials, videos, and documentation, as well as best practice tips, quick start guides, and community resources, including the Couchbase Developer Community Forum. Ready to get started developing on Couchbase? Visit couchbase.com slash new to Couchbase. Hello. Good morning, everybody. Whenever you are, this is Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You're listening to the Stack Overflow podcast, so thanks for tuning in. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about cybersecurity, and we're going to be chatting with Lance Cleghorn. Lance, welcome to the show. Hey, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and get a chance to talk about some awesome security stuff. Terrific. Well, yeah, it's it's been a popular topic. When I have hack somewhere in the in the title of the podcast episode or a blog post, it always gets significantly more traffic than your average post. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What is it you do? Where do you work? Just a sort of basic primer on who you are. Yeah, for sure. So I work uh, within the United States government, uh, specifically within the Department of Defense in a little group called the Defense Digital Service. So Defense Digital Service, uh, we like to self-describe ourselves as a SWAT team of nerds. We work directly for the Secretary of Defense, and we aim to tackle some of the military's most difficult technology problems by sort of infusing industry best practices and and problem solving to those. Within DDS, I'm in the engineering guild. So we have sort of like different guilds based on people's skill sets. So I primarily focus on cybersecurity uh, with a little bit of networking mixed in there. So that's, that's me. Cool. You have guilds. You have classes and levels. Is this a full Dungeons and Dragons like take? Or I, th- I think yeah. we're working that way. So <laughs> it used to just be like you know groups, and then we we decided to rebrand as guilds, which I think is much more exciting. Yeah, I mean it brings in all the World of Warcraft players who probably know a lot exactly about pawning people at least. <laughs> so how did you get involved in this world? Did you uh, start out when you were young? Did you come from computer science? What led you to the position you're in now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so when I was when I was very young, so I'm I'm 30, right? And I originally grew up sort of in the era of like technology becoming a thing. And I can remember being like four years old and sitting on my grandfather's lap as we played Lemmings, like booting into DOS and stuff. Uh, so from like oh, from yeah. like a really young age, like I've been really into technology. And then you know going through high school, I grew up in sort of a rural area, but was able to uh, get an NSA scholarship for school. Um, and part of that involved coming back to the to the department and sort of doing like a like a a repayment of service. So I started out started out in DoD about eight years ago, and then mm-hmm. I've done you know anything uh, and everything you could probably imagine in the security field within DoD, from pen testing to regulation and compliance, and then ultimately like moving over to work with the uh, Defense Digital Service. So you went straight from school into the service. You didn't have any private industry experience or anything like that. Yeah. So within school, I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to work within, I went to East Carolina University and fortunate enough to spend a lot of time there uh, actually working for the school, providing uh, sort of like educational IT support. So definitely count that as part of my time, you know, it was full-time gig, but then it moved over and I've been most of my career within the government. And so after your computer science education, as you got into your career in government, are there certain languages, technologies, or frameworks that are kind of key when you're in the world of security? Uh, and does that mirror what you would see in you know a shop where you're building a, a mobile app or a cloud 
cloud service? This is a really good question. So I'm actually, um, I wouldn't self-describe myself as a, as a comp sci or a programmer. Um, you know, I, I did technology infrastructure and uh, like networking and then ultimately mm-hmm. got a degree in uh, cybersecurity. But it's a really great question because the DOD is probably one of the, I think it is the largest single employer of, of human beings in the world. And so with that, <laughs> like we- Amazon's trying their best. Right, they're, Amazon is catching They're working on it. Um, maybe some Tesla there. But um, we have such a varied- degree of people that you get almost mm-hmm. every single language, um, Java, C, Sharp, .NET, everything you could imagine under the sun is within the DoD. And that not only presents like, you know, huge opportunities, but also creates massive challenges, right? Because it's not mm-hmm. like security isn't one size fits all. And there's not really a great way to come at, you know, attacking and securing the DoD, right? Like it's huge. Right. And so you mentioned that you, you've worked in sort of like different disciplines within that where did you start? And, and was this a natural transition sort of based on what you were interested in? Or was this where the demand was? Like, what's made you move around to the different uh, guilds, as, as they're called? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, originally starting out within within the government, I started out in sort of like, like almost like regulation and compliance. So, you know, mm-hmm. looking at defense frameworks and how well DOD organizations were, were applying those. And I like to call that like compliance-based security. And I think lots of people enjoy compliance-based security, but, uh, you know, for me, it wasn't my favorite. Uh, you know, I really mm-hmm. took the opportunity to sort of focus on, you know, how to get more to that like kinetic security where, you know, when the packets are actually hitting the firewall and people are actually attacking a web app or something, like how do you go about providing, you know, real world security? And so that's what I've spent a lot of my career focusing on trying to get better and trying to, you know, help the department really uh, improve on. So, right. In the first example, you're kind of going around and making sure everything is buttoned up and that the best practices are yeah. being applied. And the second one, you're in a, you know, an actual situation and you have to respond in real time or something to that. Yeah, effect. absolutely. And uh, one, one of the major things that I work on at DDS is our, our Hack the Pentagon project. So, you know, you, you mm-hmm. said like every time Hack shows up in the in the uh, podcast title, so you can definitely use it here. But <laughs> Hack the Pentagon is essentially bringing crowdsource penetration testing, um, what's commonly referred to as like bug bounties, like you might see with like your mm-hmm. your hacker ones or your bug crowds or Synax and applying that to all corners of the DOD to help show where, yeah, we've done all the compliance-based security, but when the rubber meets the road, this is how secure you actually are. Yeah. I did a story about HackerOne. I think it was back in like 2015 at the time, you know, that kind of uh, bug bounty as a service platform was just sort of rising and it's been fascinating to watch. I guess, do you think there's a need for that because there's just so much more attack surface and so much more has been digitized? Like how come that is sort of the new approach that people are using? It's a great question. So, um, you know, I think the sort of like the holy grail and people uh, with with AI and security right now is figuring out how do you emulate like a real threat actor? Like how do you emulate an actual person with intelligence attacking your network? And that's one of the things that, you know, your your bug bounty effort really does that, you know, you could scan all day with something like Nessus and find vulnerabilities, but it doesn't really translate into, hey, I I forgot to change the password, right? Well, you know, or or I used a (laughs) password that is ABC one, two, three, right? And that's where we found that like these bug bounty pen testing, like crowdsourced efforts are really fantastic at approaching the problem from a really diverse background. And what we found Mm. is like people that grew up in India or grew up overseas and learned, you know, maybe at like a small school focusing on problem solving in a very specific way are very different and approach problems differently than folks that might have, you know, learned from, you know, a major American university like like MIT or Stanford or something. And a lot of times those folks will find things that, you know, an MIT graduate would never even think to look just based on how they've you know, been educated and, and how they might approach the problem. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. I was asking this question the other day, but obviously, you know, we were chatting before the podcast started about how everything has gone to remote, you know, that has its pros and its cons. It's, it's a big adjustment for everybody. You mentioned that you did pen testing in the past. Has there been a change in the world of cybersecurity now that nobody's in offices, there are no conferences, there are no work dinners? I mean, like whenever I have to do these cybersecurity trainings, a lot of it is about don't leave your laptop open at the Starbucks, like things that haven't been part of my world for over a year and may not be for another year. So I guess- has that like area of vulnerability, the physical, you know, security kind of diminished and has some other area grown in its place? Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the biggest ways we've seen cybersecurity change is so originally when there was defense in depth and there was sort of like layered perimeter based defenses, it was all about cracking the perimeter. And then we saw, mm-hmm. you know, a huge shift in threat actors using uh, spear phishing and drive by downloads to sort of leapfrog over the perimeter. But now with with this remote work culture that's sort of blossoming, we're seeing sort of like a return to that, like cracking the perimeter. Like if you keep up with uh, sort of major CVEs coming out, been a lot of ASAs, a lot of VPN providers, and then most notably like like Zoom and and the major uh, meeting conference software providers have been hit a lot, not only with just research, but actual like findings and exploitation. So definitely like, Mm -hmm. you know, waxing and waning and sort of the things that are that are becoming the focus of threat actors and researchers. And so I don't know what degree you can discuss it, but the big security story, you know, of the last year was about a sort of attack on the the supply chain, the infrastructure of, you know, what we think of as digital technology and networking technology, you know, and that made its way all the way into, you know, the U.S. government at various places, but also across the private sector. So was there a lesson that we should learn there? Was that something that, you know, people saw coming but didn't have the resources to deal with? What about, you know, that, what was it called? Fire? What was the name of that? Uh, so Sunburst, the Orion uh, SolarWinds-based malware. Um, SolarWinds, right. yes. And so it, it's it's a fascinating case study. So I think over the past few years, and if you go back in time, this isn't the first time that we've seen like a supply chain targeted. I think it's probably mm-hmm. the, the the largest event and and the most significant US-based event, but it's not mm-hmm. it's not a new attack vector, but maybe one that we didn't take very seriously before, by and large, as mm-hmm. a community. And I think the, the trick here is it looks so genuine, right? Like it was very legitimate, genuine looking traffic going to SolarWinds that firewalls would classify as great, you know, from a network defense perspective, you would be certain that this was good traffic. And then in the middle of it, mm-hmm. it was, you know, big time malware. So it's a, right. it's a fascinating case study and has like, I think, really far reaching impacts on, you know, how we approach security and how we take things like, you know, even like bug bounty efforts and apply them earlier in the development of products and how we spread those out to focus not just on the application itself, but also the libraries that it depends on, the infrastructure that it depends on, and the other service providers that it may rely on for, you know, essential functionality. I remember talking to my co-host about this and I was reading through like a Microsoft analysis of it. And they were saying, oh yeah, as soon as I see like .dll, you know, my eyes just glaze over. You know, there's no, (laughs) that's at that point they've got you, you know, like, and I guess, yeah, the the question that came to my mind was, you know, Stack Overflow has some business and enterprise software. We have some clients who prefer to have everything delivered on-prem and updated once a quarter as opposed to over the cloud. And we have to go through, you know, these SOC 1 and SOC 2 security audits. How come this vendor who had such a, you know, like sort of high profile list of Fortune 50 clientele and, and people in government 
How come they didn't have to have those same kind of, I guess, security audits on their end? Or did they? And it was just like, it missed this. Yeah. And, and I think that's the trick is like, uh, they, they very likely did. Like, I, I don't know for certain that, you know, what compliance audits they would have had to go through. But, you know, Solar, right. SolarWinds isn't a small outfit, right? Like, it, it's got a, a pretty significant permeation throughout the throughout the industry. Right. You know, for, for sure, they went through audits. They probably had decent security. It's just uh, when you're working against a threat actor, you, you almost have to assume a breach. Like, you have to assume that something mm. like this is going to happen. And then try and figure mm-hmm. out like, you know, what should we have done? Like what kind of like right. code checking and like code auditing should have happened before a new branch was checked in with this with this malicious code involved, right? right. Like it, it's not outlandish to think that something should have caught this, right? Before we get off this topic, one more question, which is, you know, there was a lot of discussion about the fact that it had been there for some time and been, you know, at a certain level that it would be hard to unwind, you know, hard to understand when those people had really left the network and and really you had cleaned things up to the point where they couldn't just sort of reinsert themselves. Can you explain for listeners who might not be as well versed in cybersecurity sort of what the dilemma is there and, and how you might go about fixing it? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times what will happen with like with a breach where a threat actor is sort of like dug in or established uh, persistence is that you, you really can't trust anything. If you go back and try and piece together from a logging perspective what's happened, a lot of organizations don't keep logs past 30, 60, 90 days. So at mm. some point, right, like you're going to reach a situation where you're not 100% sure what's happened and you don't really know how to go about dissecting what can can be trusted and what can't. So you really mm-hmm. get into a situation of, you know, do you blow everything away? Do you just nuke it all and start over? You, you know, or, or is there some way to actually go through and just do a, you know, top to bottom audit of everything going on in your network? And you might imagine like how complicated modern networks can be and all the different things sort of flying back and forth. That's almost an impossible task, right? Especially if you don't have good logs that can tell you exactly what's happened. Um, you just don't even right, know. Right. So I think what actually got me inspired to reach out was that I was following someone on Twitter who I knew from my days in the New York tech scene, John Sawyer, and he he was tweeting a little something about, you know, the sort of pros and cons of offensive versus defensive cybersecurity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that a paradigm that exists both within, you know, state actors, but also within, you know, the private sector? And and how do people play on those two sides of the fence? Like what, what's the current thinking about how you should approach that? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, um, <laughs> but I'll give it a shot. Um, yeah, so so John definitely, uh, you know, is is highlighting a really important thing that we at DDS have tried to focus on, which is the idea that red team exercises or, or actually like showing uh, developers and networking engineers and and folks that may be securing the network or that play some role in securing the network um, exactly mm-hmm. how a threat actor might think. Um, that's very, very different than sort of blue teaming and, you know, building up your defenses, right? So Mm. building the castle is great, but the first time, you know, I come and and knock a siege weapon through the door, you know, you have to do something different with the door, right? Right, Um, right. And and so that kind of like sort of scenario-based threat actor emulation is one of the the most valuable things that we've seen. And it extends down, like I know a lot of your audience is is developers and and it extends down specifically to developers uh, because I know a lot of developers look at security as sort of like this almost like ambiguous, challenging thing where people just come in and say, no, right? Like you can't do this. You can't mm-hmm. code this way. Can't use this language. But it's a lot more interesting, I think, to to look at what do threat actors actually do and, and why do people come at them like a, you know, this isn't a good idea perspective. I guess in, from my perspective, right, like it's clear and I think out in public that at a nation state level, there's both offensive and defensive practices yep. and that, you know, there could be a healthy discussion about what, you know, what level of offense is acceptable as a way of playing defense yeah. or doing espionage. 
Within the private sector, you're saying this is mostly done, again, sort of in the form of penetration testing, which is to say red team, blue team, like go through these sort of like attack scenarios so that you learn the tactics and learn where your weaknesses are. Absolutely. And, you know, if we look at, you know, if you look at like the information that, that companies like FireEye publish on specifically like threat actors right. and, and who the threat actors are targeting, largely they go after private sector, right? Like, it, you know, for sure there's right. government activity, but it's largely going after major intellectual property, you know, significant technological advancements that may be happening. So there's definitely a lot of, I think, importance from the private sector perspective to look at what these threat actors are doing and try and emulate their tactics as much as possible in order to secure right. these things better. And so red team is always the aggressor and blue team, the defender. This is like a white hat, black hat yeah. thing. That's how you... This is the, t- yeah. the typical okay. uh, paradigm. And so security seems like a really interesting sort of like subset of being a developer. My understanding is that it's actually even more in demand and, and well compensated than the rest of engineering, which is you know quite a lucrative profession quite often. Is there an additional sort of tax on that in the beginning where you have to be educated or get a security clearance or work with government? Like what's stopping the demand for this particular sector from being flushed the way it is for other areas of software? It's a good question. Um, and, and one that I'm, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure that I even know an answer for because it's something that I think it is lucrative. Like you're right. Like it's something that's in demand, uh, specifically within the government. You know, having a developer that can talk security um, and really like gets mm-hmm. it is, is a skill set that I think we highly value. Uh, because I think a lot of times we feel like you know we sort of silo things and have our engineering group, our infrastructure engineers, and you know our security folks will talk back and forth on security things, and they leave the developers mm-hmm. out of the conversation. You know, and and I don't know culturally where that stems from, but I think having a developer that, that could develop that skill set is definitely something that we would highly value within the department. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, what you were saying before about, you know, the, sort of the idea of blockers, right? Like where it's like, don't use this language or don't build it this way. And yeah, a lot of developers usually are under a deadline, you know, and they're doing sprints. And so, right, they want security to be the afterthought, you know, after they've delivered <laughs> on the product, then it's your problem. Absolutely. It's funny. So uh, in one of my previous roles, I oversaw a, a program that included a development shop. And one of the things we did is we installed like code gates uh, for security events in our coding uh, CICD pipeline. And it was fantastic to have conversations with our developers on, you know, setting deadlines and then adding in security at the very end and like how that impacted our mm-hmm. deadlines and how that could set things back. And so I think figuring out how to better bake in security and secure coding practices earlier on, it not only like secures the product, but also helps meet deadlines because, you know, when you're scoping these deadlines and working in sprints, you can actually determine this is how long a, you know, a ticket is really going to take. Right. And so what is a gate in that? For people who don't know, like what does a gate mean in that sort of CI, CD pipeline? Yeah, absolutely. So we used uh, things like SonarCube essentially to figure out like code quality and, you mm-hmm. know, essentially flagging on, uh, you know, bad coding practices. Like, hey, you used MD5 to hash something instead of, uh, you know, SHA-256 or 512, right? Gotcha. You know, and, and then flagging on that and sort of determining from a heuristics base uh, what kind of score we should assign that code from a security perspective. Like how many of these, how many of these like insecure coding practices did you implement in your code? And, and how can we get it to be better, right? Yeah. If, is, it, is it strongly typed? Is it strongly secure? Exactly. Like, I mean, if you just make it easy for people you know, to have a checklist up front, then it takes less time to revise. Exactly. It. And so what about from a personal perspective? You know, I think most people have seen Snowden. Um, there's that classic scene where he keeps putting the tape over his girlfriend's webcam. Like, 
in your life, are there things that you do that other people don't because you live in this world? Or do you think maybe it's more about sort of your mindset, you know, the way you would think about giving permissions to an app or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it does change your mindset. I think um, from a personal perspective, I'm a lot more cautious about my PII, my personally identifiable information. Um, you know, when you get a credit card or home loan or something and, you know, you're asked for your social security number, you know, I'm a lot more uh, inclined to ask why and sort of figure out, you know, are there alternative ways that I can identify myself to you that don't involve giving up, you know, the thing that we have decided most uniquely identifies us as, as American citizens. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, webcam covers, you know, once you start assuming that things like assume breach happen, you know, start treating everything from an untrusted perspective, you know, it's right. not the worst way to live, but but also can be a little bit kooky, I think. I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's for you to tell me, you know, like, <laughs> A healthy level of paranoia is obviously useful. Uh, you know, if you planned ahead before the pandemic, now you're patting yourself on right. the back. But yeah, you don't want to feel anxious all the time. So I guess, is there, do, do you do something almost more outside of the technology, whether that's, I don't know, meditation or reading, but like, what do you do to relax? You know, if, if this stuff is stressing you out, how do you... How do you disconnect? Oh, so, so I'm a big time gamer, you know, and so, so I spend a lot of time gaming and sometimes that's relaxing, right? <laughs> but yeah. um, but that's, I think that's primarily my, my major way of de-stressing, you know, and then getting out in nature, I, I found, you know, pre, mm-hmm. pre-coronavirus and, you know, even now a little bit, but um, getting out in nature and sort of like unplugging from everything for a little while is always really nice. At the end of every episode, I usually do this thing where I read a a lifeboat, which is a question on uh, Stack Overflow that was asked. It had gotten downvoted to a a score of negative three or more. And then somebody came in and gave an answer and and got it up to a score of of 20 or more. And so they get like a little lifeboat badge. But usually when I have a guest who's coming from a particular world, I, I check in on the Stack Exchanges. So let's see what's going on on our information security Stack Exchange this week. Expose my browser cookie with my header request. Mm. I exposed my browser cookie of my request header in a web forum. After I realized what I had done, I logged out, cleared my browser and logged in again. Am I safe now? All right, we're going to have to leave people to find out. I'm not going to answer the question. You have to read the show notes to find out, but there'll be something to learn in there for everybody. Terrific. Well, Lance, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for spending the time. If people want to learn more about you, is there a place they can find you online? Absolutely. So um, if any of this sounds sounds really cool and you want to bring your development chops to come do a nerd tour of duty with the DoD, you can check us out at dds.mil. Uh, and if it's really interesting to you, click on the join us now to, to apply. Or if you want to check us out on Twitter, we're at uh, Defense Digital. Very cool. All right. I'm Ben Popper, director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper and you can email us podcast at stackoverflow.com. <laughs>